What I want to do this week is I want to now take the conversation to the New Testament. And I want to uh, look at how this doctrine is established in the New Testament, primarily using uh, the words of Jesus. We'll look at other verses as well, but primarily I want to touch um, what Jesus says about hell. And uh, this week I want to have in mind the the question about uh, how long does hell last for? That's another question that's kind of out there. You know, there's a couple ways that people that do not believe that hell is forever think. Uh, One version is that they believe that hell is a momentary place of discipline wherein people go there and they are momentarily purged of sin and then from there they're able to spend eternity with God. So they think of it as this momentary place of of purging of sin. On the other side of, of that argument where they don't believe hell is forever, they, they see hell as a place of judgment. They don't see it as a place where people can escape from it, like in that first view, that's a universalist view. The second view is uh, described or known as annihilationism, and they see hell as a place where somebody goes and they're punished, but the punishment is short-term and it... it it ends up with the person being destroyed, not existing anymore. They don't see it as an eternal punishment. They see it as a momentary punishment, uh, and the person is no more. And so I'm addressing that from a theological standpoint. Uh, does hell last forever? Does the torment of hell last forever? I want to work through it in the New Testament. And, and here's, what, here's my heart on the whole thing. Uh, Every time that I've come and approached this subject in my study and in the preaching of it, uh, it's just uh, an overwhelming thing that, that lays on my soul. It's very sobering and, um, and it's heartbreaking. And here's why. Because as we're, we're dealing with this doctrine and we're dealing with what the scriptures say about hell, we cannot allow this to get into the merely technical ideas of what the Greek word means, what the Hebrew word means, and all that. I'm going to talk about those things. But if it stays in this technical theological place and the ideas of hell simply become jargon, we've missed the entire point. And the, the point is this. There is a real afterlife. Eternity is real. And there is a resurrection for the righteous and a resurrection for the unrighteous. And, and the resurrection for the righteous is a place, it's an existence, I should say, that is infinite in pleasure, infinite in, in the experience of knowing God, and the resurrection for the unrighteous is infinite in its torment. And we cannot move into this concept of this, this idea of this thing being a technical discussion. We're talking about real people. We're talking about the eternal destinies of real people. And uh, it's just something that moves me emotionally. I'm just a man. And these things move me emotionally because I think of family members and friends who have passed... 
who I know in their life on the earth didn't know the Lord. And I know others who I am, have that are family members and friends who right now they don't know the Lord. And so I can't disconnect this thing uh, from the real faces. And I would encourage you not to do that as well. I would encourage you to connect the truths, even though some of this is technical stuff, I'm trying to arm you for these false theological arguments by giving you some of the, the technical stuff. But the point is to connect these truths to the reality that we're really talking about people. This is a real deal. And I'll just say this just on a personal side note. This has been one of the most difficult series for me to preach. Maybe the most difficult that I've ever preached. Because every time I come to preach this subject, my heart, it, it just begins to tremble. Just really, I just begin to tremble. And I'm, I'm in recognition of the, the severity of this. And so we just, can't, we just can't go at it lightly. And we just can't go at it flippantly. And I appreciate you hanging in there. Those of you that have been coming week after week to hear this. Because, I mean, you go, hey, we're going to go to church. Well, we're about to get hit with something that's probably going to make us think and I appreciate you staying in there okay let's look at uh, the words that are used to describe the underworld uh, in the New Testament there's there's basically five biblical words four of them are in the New Testament that describe hell and the underworld and I'm going to add a fifth New Testament phrase because each of these words in the Bible, the one in the Old Testament, Sheol, we talked about that last week, and then these four others in the New Testament, they point to this fifth phrase. Now, I'm going to give you these words, and I'm just going to lay them out for you, then we're going to work through them. We're going to go fairly quickly, because I've got a decent amount of ground I need to cover. Okay, the four New Testament words that are about the underworld that give us the, the ideas of hell are Hades, Tartarus. Tartarus is T-A-R-T-A-R-U-S. Tartarus, Abusos. These are the Greek terms. Abusos, A-B-U-S-S-O-S, if you're taking notes. And Gehenna. Those are the, the four key words uh, that are used to, to speak of hell in the New Testament. The final one is a phrase that we translate lake of fire, limne pur, limne pur, that, that's the, the Greek, limne pur, L-I-M-N-E-P-U-R, pur. Let's work through these words for a moment and... Uh, some of them I'm going to spend a little more time on than others because some of them are more pertinent to our discussion. So look at the word Hades. Hades appears ten times in the New Testament. Uh, Hades is the closest New Testament word to the Old Testament word Sheol. So we found out last week that Sheol has a place, uh, or has a, a few definitions to it. In Sheol there is... Uh, a place where the righteous go after they die and where the unrighteous go after they die, actually in Sheol. Sheol is also used in the Old Testament to describe uh, the lake of fire. 
Hades is used the same way in the New Testament. Ten different times. And, and Jesus gives us in Luke 16 a, a very clear parable that describes Hades and the different locations in Hades. And Hades is essentially known as the abode of the dead. You see Hades in Greek mythology. Uh, Hades is always portrayed as a negative place. We're going to work through what Jesus said about it. Now, he gives us this parable, but it's, a, it's one of the most unusual parables. This parable that Jesus gives us doesn't have anything that's uh, parabolic to it. It's, it's, it's actually just the real explanation of the thing. And he's giving us a couple uh, figurative characters. That's the only thing that's figurative about this parable. He actually breaks down for us what Hades is. Look at Luke 16 and verse 19. It says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. That last line is a prophetic word to the nation of Israel at the time that would reject Messiah. Jesus telling the story of, of Hades. So here's what you have. You've got this rich man, and you've got this poor man. Now, lest you think that the rich man goes to the bad side of Hades because he's rich, and the poor man goes to the good side because he's poor, what you really have here is that the poor man was daily in front of this rich man, and the rich man never opened his heart of mercy to reach out to this poor man in any way. And so his lack of of charity shows the status of his heart that he was away from God. That's the point. And so here this rich man is, and he is in Hades, and he is in this side of Hades where he's actually experiencing torment and flame. And he can physically see with his eyes 
across this gulf, this great chasm that's there in Hades. He can see across it and he can see Lazarus, this poor man who's there with Abraham. He can actually see them. And, and the poor man is there in comfort. He, he's there receiving a, a time of rest and blessing. And it's so severe that the rich man says, just send him to put a drop of water on my tongue. Just, just send him to one drop of water, please. And he says, you can't, there's a gulf here, there's no way to get back and forth. In other words, this is final. Rich man, this is final. And then he says, please send somebody to let them all know. And there's the message from hell, isn't it? Man, send somebody to let them know. And he says, they've got the prophets, they've got the word of God. They're going to have one that's going to come back from the dead. But that, that reprobate Jewish nation wouldn't even hear Jesus. And that's what Jesus is hinting at here. Now, the interesting thing about Hades is this, that uh, this is the word for Sheol. This is the, 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 you know, the continuation of the Old Testament doctrine of Sheol, where we see the righteous and the unrighteous going there. Now, when Jesus was resurrected, in Ephesians 4, it says that he led a host who were captive, he led them to heaven. He led, it says he led captivity captive. He's talking about how he led them out of the underworld. And, and what it's saying is, this group that was in Hades, that was in Abraham's bosom, was led by Jesus to the throne of God. And so here's how Hades works for us today. The unrighteous... From all the ages, from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, when they die, they go to Hades. They go to Hades. It is a prison until the time of the great white throne judgment. We're going to see that in just a minute. And it is a a place of torment. And they're reserved there until the final judgment where then Hades itself... And all whose names are not written in the book of life are going to be cast into the lake of fire. Hades itself will be put in the lake of fire. So it is a holding place. Now, the righteous, as I said, from the Old Testament, when Jesus was resurrected, they, all the righteous from the Old Testament were believing in the one that was to come, Messiah. It actually says Jesus came and preached to those who were in prison and that they believed in Messiah. They knew it was Jesus they were looking for and he led the righteous to the throne of God. And so from the time of Jesus' resurrection until now, any who are righteous who die, uh, Paul told us, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The righteous no longer go to Abraham's bosom. They actually go to the throne of God. So the the quote-unquote, good side of Hades is emptied. The tormenting side of Hades still has souls in it. And it's severe there. But I believe it is not as severe as what is getting ready to come for them. It is a place of torment, and I'll show you why I think that in a moment, but that place of torment and all who are in it will at a later time, be delivered into the lake of fire. So this is Hades. 
Now, let's work through a couple of these other words. Tartarus. Tartarus is used once in the New Testament. It's used in 2 Peter. And it's described as a prison for evil spirits. And uh, it is, in my opinion, the same thing as the word abusos. The word abusos is translated abyss and bottomless pit. So we have Tartarus, which is like a prison for these spirits. It says they're locked up in chains in Second Peter. Well, abusos, it shows up nine times in the New Testament, every single time in reference to demons. Seven times it's in the book of Revelation. And all seven of those have to do with it being like a, a prison or a jail for evil spirits. So this place, the bottomless pit or the abyss or Tartarus, it's, it's somewhere in the underworld where demons are held captive. And what you see in the book of Revelation is you see at times demons are actually let out of the abyss. And then you see at other times where demons and Satan himself are thrown into the abyss and locked. So it's this, it's this prison that holds evil spirits. And then our fourth word, Gehenna. Now, I, I need to work through Gehenna a little bit so that you comprehend what it is. It's the main word Jesus used for hell. Uh, in the New Testament, he used it 12 times in the Gospels. Gehenna literally means the gorge or the valley of Hinnom. Hinnom, H-I-N-N-O-M. The valley of Hinnom is a physical location uh, outside Jerusalem on the earth. Okay? Now, historically, the valley of Hinnom was a place where the children of Israel worshipped demons. They worshipped Molech and they worshipped Baal there in the valley of Hinnom. And, and uh, it explains to us in Ezekiel that they had this idol, this statue of Molech with these two giant iron hands and they would heat those hands till they were glowing red and they would uh, offer their children as a sacrifice to Molech by taking their infant babies and putting them in those hands in the valley of Hinnom. It's also in the Old Testament referred to as Topheth. That's just the location, Topheth. Now here's the thing. By the time Jeremiah comes and he's prophesying that Babylon is going to judge Israel, that Babylon's going to be God's instrument to judge Israel, what he does with this, this uh, idea of the Valley of Hinnom is, he says, just like it's been this place of destruction where you've worshipped demons, God is going to make it a place of destruction for you. And, and in Jeremiah 7, verse 32, he says this, Behold, the days are coming when it will no longer be called the valley of the son of Hinnom. But it will be called the valley of slaughter. And it's because the number of Jews that would be killed there around Jerusalem would be so excruciating, so high, that that place would be filled with dead bodies. That's what Jeremiah was prophesying. He goes, your demon worship 
where you, where you destroyed your children is going to be a place now, the place where you did that is going to be a place of your own destruction. Does that make sense? Now here's the thing. From that time, when the, after the Babylonians come and they, they uh, level Jerusalem, from that time in the Jewish mind, the Valley of Hinnom becomes a metaphor for the place of judgment and the place of destruction. Now, it was a physical place where they did demon worship. And it was a place outside Jerusalem where, you know, many dead bodies were laid after the the siege uh, by Babylon. But in the Jewish mind, it became a metaphor for a place of God's judgment and a place of destruction. It would be similar to this. And and I've I've known uh, some older men who have served our military in Vietnam and, and they've said how just it was like this incredibly, incredibly difficult, difficult environment. And it would be like if somebody said, you know, about something else that was incredibly difficult. Man, it's like Nam. You know, it just you take the name of the place and you associate it with something extremely hard. And now that's come to mean something different than actually the, the location. It's come to mean a place of excruciating difficulty. Same thing with the Valley of Hinnom. It goes through this this transformation in terms of what it, what it stood for. And so by the first century, Jews would say Valley of Hinnom. And in their mind, what they were saying was Sheol. They were saying hell, the place of judgment, the place of God's judgment. And so when Jesus shows up, he shows up and he uses that term. He says the Greek is Gehenna, but he's saying Valley of Hinnom. Does that make sense? He's speaking in a language a first century Jew would have fully understood. And so when he uses this term over and over and over, they have in their mind the picture of destruction and God's judgment and wrath. That's what they're thinking. Um, here's, here's a couple points. Number one, If Jesus were trying to re-identify what was in their mind uh, about the Valley of Hinnom, he would have made that plain. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, several times he shows up and he says, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And he he reorients them to the truth of what the, the scriptures are supposed to have meant. He never does that with this issue of the Valley of Hinnom. He never does that with Gehenna. He uses Gehenna just plainly, and he, and he allows them to carry forward whatever they think it is. He doesn't even define it for them. He just uses it as this place of eternal destruction. So in their mind, when he's saying Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, they're thinking hell. Does that make sense? Now, how many has ever heard that Gehenna was a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem where they burnt refuse? And trash. How many's ever heard that? Okay. I don't want to. I don't want to bust your bubble too bad. But I do want to uh, propose something to you that that may not be actually the case. And here's why. Uh, the popular teaching is that Gehenna became a, a garbage dump, a place of burning of trash that was always lit on fire. And, and so when Jesus was saying Gehenna, he was referencing the garbage dump and people understood it as a place of refuse and fire and, and a place of disgusting stuff. 
here's the, here's the thing though. That idea, um, that idea is never expressed until the 12th century. That, that Gehenna was a garbage dump, that's in no historical writings. It's in none of the Jewish uh, historians of the times. In fact, that whole concept of Gehenna being a, a garbage dump, it doesn't show up till 1200 AD in a rabbi named David Kimhi. David Kimhi lived in Europe in 1200 AD, 1200 years after the first century. Here's another little thought. There's no archaeology that identifies a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem in the Valley of, in the valley of Hinnom. No archaeology that shows it at all. No historical writings that show it at all. The point is, it's this popular idea that was first introduced by this European rabbi, David Kimhi, but it doesn't necessarily uh, have a lot of historical backdrop to it. It's just become a popular thought. I personally think that Jesus wasn't referencing a, a garbage dump that they were familiar with. I, purpose, I, I personally think Jesus was referencing what was already in the mind of first century Jews, that Gehenna was a place of God's wrath and judgment that spoke of e- eternal judgment. And here's what you'll find out, and I don't want to go through the technicality of this, but if you read Jewish historians of the day, if you read the Apocrypha and other Jewish historians, you'll find that their treatment of the afterlife and the, what was already resident in the Jewish mind, their treatment of the judgment of, of the unrighteous, they all have it in their mind. It's a place of fire, of torment, of smoke, of flame. It's a place of everlasting destruction for the unrighteous. And so when Jesus shows up and starts using Gehenna without qualifying it, without explaining it, he just u- plugs it in as a term for hell, I think he's already referencing what's in the Jewish mind. Does that make sense? All right. Now with that in mind, I want to turn our attention to the concept of the lake of fire. Lake of fire. And here's why. All of the discussions of Sheol, hell, Gehenna, as a place of eternal judgment... They're all pointing to this final location where the unrighteous will spend eternity, eternity, the lake of fire. That's what it's all pointing to. Jesus uses a term, he calls it the fiery furnace. In the book of Revelation, four different times, the the phrase is the limne pur, the lake of fire. And that is the ultimate destination for the unrighteous. And I want to look at these verses because here's where the, this is where this thing has got to get real for us. So turn with me to uh, Revelation 19. <clears throat> and we're going to take a look at the lake of fire. Because when we're saying hell, we're not talking about Hades specifically. We're talking about the lake of fire. Now, once again, the unrighteous go to Hades until the time of the great white throne judgment. And after the great white throne judgment, the unrighteous go to the lake of fire. Revelation 19, verse 20. This is talking about the judgment of Antichrist and his false prophet. 
the, then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence. I want to just insert, these are men. These are actual men. Antichrist is a man. The false prophet is a man. They will be men. The false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Burning with brimstone. Now flip over one page, Revelation 20. And we're going to look at now the judgment of Satan. Revelation 20, we're going to pick up the story in verse 7. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, gather them together to battle. His numbers as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city, and fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. Verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. The Limnipur, the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever. Up to this moment, you only have two men and Satan in the lake of fire. Now look, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face... The earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place. There was found no place for them. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each according to his own works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. That means the second death is after a person dies physically, they die eternally by being cast into the lake of fire. Verse 15 And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. So the unrighteous, they stay in Hades until the great white throne, at which time they will come before the throne of God. They will be judged by their works. And if their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, that's synonymous with saying, if they have not made Jesus Christ their Lord they will be cast into the lake of fire. Now look at this. Revelation 14 is going to give us the details of the lake of fire. And what I want to do is I just want to read through these verses. And I just want to summarize for us what the scripture actually says about the lake of fire. And keep in mind, I'm... I'm, I'm 
I'm dealing with this question of, is this forever? Is this forever? Now, this is in specific speaking of people who who receive the mark of the beast at the end of the age. But this is the eternal dwelling place for every person that rejects the lordship of Jesus. Verse 10. He himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now I want to just take the details from those two verses that spell out the lake of fire for us. It's it's four verses, but the two that give us the most detail. I want to take those and just bullet point them for you. First, it's this. The lake of fire burns with fire and brimstone. It's got a smell as much as a physical torment to it. Brimstone is sulfur. It's It's that rotten, rotten egg smell. It burns with fire and brimstone. The torment is specific. It's described as day and night forever and ever. We see that these two men, the beast and the false prophet, are thrown there. We see that death and Hades are also thrown there. And then we see that every person whose name is not found written in the Lamb's book of life is also thrown there. Revelation 14 adds to it. It adds to the details. And it adds this phrase that the lake of fire is the full strength of the wrath of God. It's the full strength of the wrath of God. Our God created the universe with a word. The book of Job says it's the mere edges or the fringe of his ways. He creates suns that are, I mean, millions of degrees hot with a word. And it's only the fringe of what he's able to do in creation. Beloved, the righteous will spend an eternity in a place, and it's not even a place, in an existence with God of infinite pleasure and infinite discovery. As we will spend eternity continuously coming to the, the highest experience of pleasure while going the deepest into God that there is available. And we will never exhaust him will never exhaust who he is and the unrighteous will spend eternity experiencing an infinite level an infinite measure of torment forever and they will never exhaust it 
the full strength of the wrath of God. It says that they will be tormented in the presence of the Lamb and His holy angels. There are theories as to what that means. I'm just going to step back from saying that. I'm just step back from any theories on that one. I don't understand it. Somehow the Lamb and the holy angels are able to perceive the torments of hell. It says that the smoke of their torment ascends forever. You see, the righteous and the unrighteous get a resurrected body. The righteous have an addition to their resurrected body. It is also glorified. Every fiber of the being of someone who's righteous is filled with the very glory of God. And they are able to, they are able to continuously you know, integrate with the divine. They're able to flow back and forth receiving from, you know, the infiniteness of who God is. Standing before God and receiving the, the beauty of God into their being. The unrighteous don't have a glorified body. They have a resurrected body. It's a spiritual body that is able to physically relate to this place of torment. And this this torment is, uh, at least one major focus of it, is fire that causes smoke to come out of their body. They're burning. Smoke is coming off of them, and it never stops because they never stop being on fire. The smoke of their torment is forever. There is fire in their being that does not stop. And they have no rest day or night. They have no rest day or night. See, when you look at the verses and you just lay it out, what you realize is that there's a lot of people playing theological games. And they're doing it for humanistic reasons. They're doing it for a a myriad of, of of motivations, I don't, I don't pretend to know why. But when you look at the verses and you just allow them to speak to you, the evidence is overwhelming. This is a place, hell is a place of eternal judgment, of eternal torment, where the, the person doesn't just quit feeling it after a while and now they're no longer there nor is it a place where they just go there for a minute and now they're sort of rehabilitated. Those are fairy tales made up in the minds of men. The scripture describes them as doctrines of demons. And people are going at great lengths to expound on these doctrines of demons. I read an article today, a long theological article, That if you just read it, you think, well, this guy's scholarly. He's throwing lots of history out there. He's throwing lots of verses out there. He's throwing some Greek stuff. He's got his lexicon out. And I'm just looking at it, and the untrained ear would look at that and go, oh, that sounds good. Hell was, uh, you know, made up as a concoction of man, and God never, 
you know, never came up with the idea of hell. And, and he has this whole thing where he says it's not in the Bible. And he uses and picks and chooses all his own verses to craft this whole thing. And I look at these verses and I just go, what do you do with the explicit truth that the scripture lays out? And then I say, well, if these things are true, how do we deal with it? Because what has got to happen for us, and this is where I'm at, I'm, I, when, I, when I come to this subject, this, this incredible sadness weighs on my soul, and I think there's several reasons, but two of them are obvious to me. One is that I've so not wanted to deal with this subject, so not wanted to think about family members and friends, that as best as I understand it, this is their eternity. And, and so you just, you just stay away from it. And then this other thing is true that being so asleep to it, it, it crafts a Christianity that we live that's just a little bit like amusement parkish, just a little bit fantasy-ish. And it's just all bless me, bless me, bless me, and just no sense for the lost, no sense for the dying, no sense for the one that doesn't know Jesus because we're so worried about getting our own blessing or, you know, whatever. And this truth, it seasons us in a way that it should compel us into tenderness toward the lost. It should create a tremble, a fear of the Lord in us that produces wisdom in how we handle ourselves. Because what's an amazing point is the number of verses on hell that are directed toward the righteous as an education and a warning, an instruction and a warning. But it should, it should temper our soul and how we handle our lives and how we go about thinking about the lost. And I just, I'm, I'm touched over this point that it's just sort of been this cliche that we just say quickly in the church, they're not saved. Oh, they're going to hell. With no feeling about it. That can't be. That cannot be. I want to uh, wrap up these next you know, five, seven minutes. And I just want to read through a variety of verses that Jesus said. Uh, he's using the term Gehenna mostly. He's using Hades and some, some he's saying furnace of fire. And I want you to put yourself in the mind of a first century Jewish person who has the picture of Sheol in their mind. They have the picture of the valley of Hinnom in their mind. They have the historical writings of the time, the apocryphal writers of the time that talk about the eternal destruction and judgment of the unrighteous and the torment that they'll experience. Those things are all in the mind of the first century Jew. And I want you to imagine you're hearing Jesus just begin to unlock these thoughts and give clarity to this topic of, of hell. And I'm just going to walk through them slowly and just read them. They'll come up on your screens for you. Matthew 5, 22. Jesus, he's, he's and I'll try not to comment on all of them, I won't. But here he's using a natural court and judgment as a metaphor 
and has a picture of the eternal court and judgment. Matthew 5, 22, And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Matthew 5, 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it's more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 13, 30, talking about the wheat and the tares. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Verse 40, so just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Son of man will send forth his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks. And those who commit lawlessness will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 18, 8. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life lame and maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It's better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. Matthew 23, 31. <clears throat> Speaking to the Jewish leaders of the day. Therefore you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Mark 9, verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It's quoting Isaiah 66, 24, which is speaking of the valley of Hinnom. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter lame, enter life lame. Rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
For everyone will be seasoned with fire. And every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. And just to definitively answer this question about whether or not hell is forever. Matthew 25, 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. See, the lake of fire wasn't prepared for man. It wasn't made for humanity. It was made for Lucifer and the fallen angels. Jesus is clear that the fire is everlasting. The question becomes, what about the torment? Verse 46. And these will go away into everlasting punishment. Everlasting punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. It should sober us. It should humble us. These truths have to be wrestled with. Just as I said, as a man who... I love people. I, I, I have relationships with people. I think about different family members and different friends. and I like them. I, I really do love them. And I just... Uh, I was saying to my son, you know, I said, son, I... He, you know, because he can tell when I'm messed up a little bit. He said, so are you tired, Dad? I go, no, it's just the subject of hell is just really weighing on my soul. He said, yeah, I, I understand that. I said, I, uh, I think about people I love, ones that have passed and then ones that I know are not saved. And he said, but Dad, you know, you're doing everything you can to see to it that they don't go to hell. And I just, man, I, in my heart I went, oh God, let that be true. Let it be true. That I'm really partnering with your grace to do everything that I can. That the people that I love and the people that I know don't go to hell. Let that be true for all of us. When he said it, I, I could have just gone, yes, that's right. But I, I tell you, in my heart, I said, I don't know. I don't know, you know, really. Am I doing, am I doing everything? And I want to. And it's in grace. You can't strive. You can't make it happen. But man, I want to agree with the grace of God to, to do everything we can. Keep people from hell. Amen.